Hey friends, it's Muriel here, 39 weeks pregnant and quarantined at home, but really wanted to be with you one last time before maternity leave. So thanks to John and Jerry for leaving on other parts of the service so I could do this from home. Thanks to you for joining from whenever and wherever you are. Okay, let's talk about trick-or-treating. So this is Alice's trick-or-treating pumpkins, got her name on it, got plenty of room inside for candy. Uh, my dad got this for her last year in a moment of nostalgia because when my sister Emma and I were little, we had these exact same pumpkins. Now, here's how trick-or-treating worked in our house. Going out and collecting all the candy, that was only the half of it because when we got home, the real work we began. So we would pour out all of our candy in front of us, so mine in front of me and Emma's candy in front of her, and we would uh, sort it, categorize it by type and size, and then we would start trading. So you know, of course, that some kinds of candy are more valuable than others, right? Like the bigger it is, the more valuable it is, obviously. But the rarer it is, the more valuable it is also. And at least for us, chocolate stuff, worth more than the fruity things. So as the older sister, at least initially, I had a leg up in these negotiations. And I would, in Emma's words, try to swindle her into making bad deals. So it maybe would sound something like, all right, Emma, I will give you five of these Tootsie Rolls for just one measly little Milky Way bar just because I'm like such a good big sister and a good person. That worked really well when she was younger, got harder as she got older and wiser and better able to advocate for herself. The negotiations would get more intense, but always the object was the same, right? To try and get as much of you as you can of the best candy possible at the expense of the other. Now, Emma and I are certainly no paragons of virtue, but this isn't like unusual human behavior, right? Like this is the way a lot of our world works. So think, um, think parking spots, employment opportunities, class rank. So much of our world is based on the idea that there's just a finite amount of stuff. And so we want to get in and get our peace, not because we're terrible, selfish people, but just because that's the way these systems are set up to operate. So, today's story, the Israelites and the Egyptians at the Red Sea, it's kind of in that same vein too, hey? Let's review. So the Israelites have been slaves to the Egyptians for years, used for manual labor, mostly building projects. And finally, so the story goes, that God decides to intervene, inflicts the Egyptians with enough crazy plagues that the Israelites have time to just grab their stuff and run for it. So they're trying to escape. Then they look back behind them, and the entire Egyptian army is pursuing them. And they look in front of them, and they've come to the sea. So they are hopelessly outnumbered, literally out of room to run and basically out of options, it looks like they're totally done for. When God through Moses does this incredible miracle, right? Parts the waters of the sea, protects them as they pass through with water on their left and on their right, the pillar of God before them, the angel of God behind them, they're able to pass safely through and when the Egyptians try and follow, God makes their chariot wheels stick in the mud so they're stuck and then sends all the water back on top of them, burying the entire army 
in the waves. It's an awesome story, right? Super exciting, the stuff movies are made out of. Here's the problem though. The freedom of the Israelites comes at the expense of all those Egyptian lives, right? The bad guys lose, the good guys win, the enemies are defeated, and God is given the credit for the victory and everybody celebrates. And here's why that's a problem. You can't be a Christian and believe in enemies. The Old Testament says everyone is made in the image of God. The New Testament says no one is beyond forgiveness and redemption. Jesus says that any of us who want to be his followers have to love our enemies. You can't be a Christian and rejoice at the downfall of an enemy. You just can't. So what do we do with this story? Well, here's two options for you to consider. Option one, we can move it to the realm of metaphor. So... No person can be my enemy, but a force can. Like you can't be my enemy, but division can be my enemy. Depression, racism, injustice, anxiety, addiction, hopelessness, apathy, ignorance, any of these forces we can fight against with all of our might, ask God to help us and rejoice wholeheartedly when they are pushed back even a little bit. So if we're facing a force like that, we should read this story and let it remind us if we're feeling backed into a corner, ours is a God who makes a way where there is no way. Ours is a God who goes before us, behind us, and on either side of us, leading us onward. And ours is a God who, even when the odds seem crazily against us, when God is there still, no matter what the odds, goodness and justice and freedom can still prevail. So that's an incredible hopeful message that we should feel free to use anytime. And it's definitely a valid use of this story. However, if you, like me, are still kind of hung up on all of those bodies on the shore, consider this. Maybe, Maybe those Israelites back then and us today, maybe we look at this story of improbable upset and we understand it as a God victory. But maybe that's not what this actually is. Maybe this is more of a human story than a God story. Because maybe a God victory is not where the bad guys lose and the good guys win and the enemy is defeated. Maybe a God victory looks more like I don't know, like that moment of forgiveness that frees both the perpetrator and the victim and lets them move towards healing both of them. Or maybe it's that moment where you're courageous enough to ask for help and you see how that help empowers and gifts not only the one who receives the help, but the one who gives it. Maybe it looks more like an abandoned city block that's turned into a garden or the former crack house that's now our partner, Serenity Inns. But you know what it looks like most of all, right? It looks like Jesus on the cross, refusing to fight back, refusing to take sides, refusing to protect himself at others' expense, and instead giving of himself so freely 
that any us and them is totally obliterated and everyone through him is forgiven, redeemed, healed, and saved. A God victory is not the good guys beating the bad guys. It's not someone else losing so that we can win. It's when God and those working on God's behalf are able to so thoroughly outwit the forces of evil that they can completely overturn the tide and rewrite the story so that all of us are lifted up together. So may we think deeply about all of these things. May we be given by God the great power we need to face down any enemy that comes against us. May we also receive God's wisdom enough to see that no person is ever our enemy. And most of all, may we work and pray not for solutions where others lose so that we can win, but may God gift us with solutions that are more cunning than that, more clever than that, more imaginative, more creative, more generous, more merciful. May our zero-sum game utterly succumb to God's win-win world. Amen.